A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thank you. 
You are listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project. Introduction, Part 1. The Treaty of Versailles and the Paris Peace Conference which housed it have together evoked arguably more debate than any other event in the 20th century, and certainly more than any other peace settlement. Was the treaty fair and just, unfair and short-sighted, or was crafting a satisfactory, long-term peace treaty in the aftermath of the First World War an impossible task from the beginning? The Great War, the First World War, or whatever you want to call it, is in itself incredibly unique and complex. For our July Crisis Anniversary Project, we learned this truth, that there was no smoking gun, no great unveiling of the arch-villain responsible for breaking the peace, and no fanatical warlord that demanded world conflict or death. For more on my views about the origins of the First World War, see the July Crisis Anniversary Project, or for the shorter version, check out the third part of the introduction, which will give you the rundown on where I stand on the whole origins debate. If you have listened to the July Crisis Anniversary Project already, and if you've actually gone straight from there to here, then you'll know that complexity was the byword for the First World War's origins, despite the fact that historians and historical schools attempt to this day to break the war down to its simplest elements and explain its outbreak in a number of straightforward ways. It was Germany's fault, or Austria's fault, or Russia's fault, or France's fault, or Serbia's fault. Accounts like these, in the words of my thesis supervisor, tend to make straight lines out of crooked roads. The different schools of debate emphasise some facts and ignore or discount others. They compartmentalise and trivialise human experience and attempt to place it into an easily digestible box where the most seismic disruption to human history and civilization that the 20th century could have produced is supposed to be able to fit. The Treaty of Versailles debate, you'll be irritated but also unsurprised to learn, is no different. Schools of thought exist to provide an explanation for the peace settlement and the Paris Peace Conference, and all of them can be said to take a certain side, while some can even be said to be associated with a particular political leaning. People on the right generally believed that the First World War was an inherently necessary war to stop German militarism, that the peace settlement which ended the war was a flawed but still necessary effort to finalise the peace agreement. It was understandable that after so many years of brutal total war, mercy and foresight were in short supply. On the other hand, those on the left tend to view the war as a disastrous waste in so many respects, and the Paris Peace Conference as the culmination of this wastage, the naive, narrow-minded product of an era completely out of touch with reality, unsure of all the facts and desperate to apportion blame, so as to justify the terrible traumas which millions had just been through. Recently, a more politically neutral account of the origins of the war, pushed above all by Christopher Clarke in his book The Sleepwalkers, views the outbreak of the First World War as a set of avoidable but also understandable mistakes, committed by several actors in disastrous synchronisation with one another. This view of the origins fits in with the alternative and less parroted view of the peace, which states that by the time of the Paris Peace Conference, in making the post-war order, the leaders of the world never stood a chance. Faced as they were with challenges and developments above the capacity of human beings to comprehend. 
Indeed, some contemporaries who were present at the Paris Peace Conference actually felt this way, and we will be meeting them during this project. Refugees, famine, the redrawing of borders in Eastern Europe, the fear of communist Russia, the creation of supranational institutions, these are challenges normally associated with the post-World War II world. But, in fact, the statesmen of 1918-19 to had also to deal with these challenges, among others. The collapse of four empires and the hole they left behind, the debt fostered upon the victors and the vanquished, with no martial plan to ease the pain, the horrendous experience of four years' worth of industrialised total war, and the pressing need to justify the suffering to the populations, without the ingenuity to implement a welfare state, the outbreak and spread of the deadliest virus in mankind's history, the Spanish flu, the millions of dead men who had left painful gaps in society, and the legions of wounded who did their own part to remind that society that the war was not over for them and never would be. The list of issues is of course a long one, and the sheer amount of challenges it threw up is often taken for granted. As we'll see, appreciating and understanding these challenges which were faced in 1918-19 to goes a long way towards explaining why those in power acted as they did. So was it a dire mistake, a fair reaction, or an impossible task from the start? Well, the boring but more accurate and fair answer says that the Treaty of Versailles was a mixture of all three. Only by taking bits from all three schools of thought can we do justice to the hidden challenges and complexities of the era. Does it not make sense that an event of such profound importance for human development and experience as the First World War should bring baggage with it that makes us confused and uncomfortable. Should we really be surprised when you think about it that the truth or a set of truths which explain the war's conclusion are not straightforward when there was, after all, nothing straightforward about the way statesmen did business before 1914, during the war, or after it? To this, we can add that those present at the Paris Peace Conference weren't just trying to fix what the First World War had broke, they were also trying to find solutions to intractable problems which existed in the early 20th century and which the sheer intensity of the war managed to hide from view. The post-war settlement is so often viewed in one particular way, that of a German Republic wronged by its former enemies, with a million cuts inflicted upon it, left to die bleeding in the corner of Europe. In actual fact, as I will demonstrate, the reality was very different. It was France, with its heart torn out following the loss of 1.4 million men and millions more wounded that declined in strength rapidly following the First World War. The demographic loss which the Great War inflicted upon France was a blow that the French psyche and French society never recovered from. And how could it when you consider that their great foe to the East remained intact, remained strong and remained, in the minds of many that lived there at least, undefeated? That is not to say that I believe Germany should have been dissected after the war, or that the French should have occupied half of it. All I'm saying is that these were problems which had existed since 1871. The question of how to balance the overwhelming power of a German state at the centre of Europe against its less powerful neighbours. This question was an enduring one. Indeed, where France had suffered a mortal blow in its Pyrrhic victory, the Germans, blunted though they were, were actually able to absorb the loss of two million men killed and millions more wounded relatively well thanks to their higher birth rate, higher population generally, and the higher proportion of younger to older people which that population contained. 
what was more, in their quest to achieve national self-determination for Eastern Europe and to set up a belt of nations around Germany's eastern flank, the French and their allies filled the hole left by the collapse of the Tsarist, Habsburg and Ottoman empires with weak nations far smaller than Germany. Again, this is not to say that those states did not deserve to exist, or that the collapse of autocratic regimes was a bad thing, but you see the dilemma. It was as though no matter what was done after the war, or whatever was decided in the peace settlement, problems would emerge. The French are unfairly lambasted, in my view, for treating Germany too harshly and demanding too much from her. Perhaps French Premier Georges Clemenceau should have been gentler, But that French premier, who had led French forces in the final year of the war, knew the painful truth that even though millions had been killed, the fundamental problem of 1871 remained. There were still much more Germans than Frenchmen. The Great War, while on paper it had been a victory, was not a triumph for France, and it did not provide her with the security that she needed. It was assumed, as France attempted to puff out its chest in the 1920s and 30s, that France was the all-powerful Republic of Yore, that its army was the best in Europe or the best in the world, and that its defensive capabilities were unmatched. Not to take anything away from the French soldiery, but these assumptions were exposed in all their tragic falseness once the sequel to the Great War erupted and France collapsed in a matter of weeks. Subsequent historians, thus, rather than seeing the Second World War as proof of the problems which French statesmen struggled with, or seeing the eruption of the Second War as the vindication of French fears, they sought to blame the French for being so arrogant and unfair, and for treating Germany like the downtrodden urchin of Europe. Laymen and even historians are frequently guilty of viewing the Great War, the Treaty of Versailles, the interwar period, and the Second World War as a single story, rather than a chapter in the story of Franco-German rivalry. Finding a solution to this rivalry, this burning hostility, was a task above the capabilities of statesmen in the 1920s and 30s, but it was not a problem which haunted them alone. In 1919, the French treated the Germans as the Prussians had treated them in 1871. In 1871, Otto von Bismarck argued for punitive terms which he believed reflected the terms of the treaties of Tilsit in 1807, where Prussian strength and land had been halved Prussia had paid a fierce indemnity, and she had been forced to spit out a league of smaller French client states. Before that, legends of Louis XIV rampaging through the Rhineland and burning the Palatinate, of German counter-invasion and raids, of the bitter struggle for Alsace and Lorraine, which festered and boiled all the way through to 1945, these were all chapters in that Franco-German story of hostility and rivalry, a story which only came to its end officially in 1963, with the signing of the Elysee Treaty. The Elysee Treaty pledged West Germany and France to end their historic antagonisms, to cooperate on defence, on culture, on education, on immigration, and a host of other issues. Renewed periodically since 1963, for its 55-year anniversary in 2018, a Franco-German force marched for a parade along the grounds of the Versailles Palace, signalling once and for all that the historic rivalry which had upset Europe's peace for so long and that wretched destination, the Palace of Versailles, where so much of this rivalry was aggravated, had been put to bed. 
Now it is unthinkable for France and Germany to be anything other than allies. Their combined power and cooperation has helped to make the European Union possible, and the two states are effectively the anchor of the continent and Western Europe. Wonderful though it is that the Germans and French managed to kiss and make up, the transformative impact which that friendship has had on Europe should tell us something about the transformative negative impact their hostility also had on one another. In another light, think merely about the startling fact that it wasn't until 1963 that those centuries of hostility, of killing each other's people for land, money or glory, were finally brought to an end. It took two very strong and confident men, West Germany's Chancellor, Konrad Adenauer, and French Premier Charles de Gaulle, to meet together and make that deal happen in 1963. Both men, as it happened, were alive in 1919. Adenauer was the mayor of Cologne, and de Gaulle was returning home after being held prisoner following the Battle of Verdun. These two men, de Gaulle and Konrad Adenauer, with their Herculean effort, no shortage of American encouragement and likely inspired by the Soviet bloc to the east, created something incredible in 1963, but neither man, a political genius in his own right, could have achieved anything close in 1919. Versailles would have to wait another 44 years before its key aim, to maintain peace and tranquility between France and Germany, was achieved. By then, Versailles had been forgotten, or if it had been remembered, then it was much maligned, as the treaty which had made everything worse and helped facilitate the nightmares of the 1930s and 40s. The question then, after this small tangent, is rather straightforward. If it took political geniuses and national powerhouses like Conrad Adenauer and de Gaulle 44 years to make peace happen, what chance in hell did those unsure, traumatised, inexperienced politicians and war veterans who attended the Paris Peace Conference have? We need, as this little demonstration shows, not to place Versailles in a box or to detach it from what came before and after. We also need to not fall into the temptation of blaming its creation on what came before or seeing what came after as all its fault. As I often have to remind myself, the statesmen of 1914, just like those of 1918-19, did not act with historians in mind. They did not act considerately, briskly or sensibly, for the benefit of those writing, researching or podcasting a century later. They acted in the way that made sense at the time, through their own limited understanding and appreciation of the facts, which they could not possibly grasp all at once. In circumstances like these, I have great difficulty placing these actors in boxes, or working through their struggles as though towards a certain shattering conclusion which cannot be denied. If the First World War proceeded as though guided by blind men in a storm, then the post-war peace arrangements were not much better. They were hampered by the sheer weight of material highlighted as required reading for the delegates, the fears which accompanied the unknown, or the possibility that one might take the wrong step. Thousands of individuals worked day and night to craft the Treaty of Versailles, and this was only one task among hundreds of others which they had in Paris, before they had even reached the point, on the 28th of June 1919, that the reluctant Germans signed on the dotted line, an immense amount of discussions were held, bloated egos were traversed, and perspectives considered. 
it was impossible, as many contemporaries at Versailles conceded, to make everyone happy. But that doesn't mean that they did not try to achieve harmony, or that those in attendance were stupid, arrogant, vain, or jealously guarding their interests. Ideas which were put forward like the League of Nations were not, by themselves, cardinal sins or mistakes. They provided lessons which would be learned in time. There was a remarkable amount of give and take, of consideration and of generosity to behold. It is just unfortunate that the genuine progress has been drowned out by the cacophony of failure which followed its signing. As with all debates which involve us peering back into the lives, the errors, the triumphs, the experiences of those men involved in negotiating, we must engage with that underrated historical exercise of placing ourselves in their shoes and asking honestly what would or even could we have done. This is a question we have encountered before. And actually, if you're aware at all of the prequel to this project, you'll know that we made use of it to ground our coverage from the beginning. When we opened the July Crisis Anniversary Project, I began the introduction episode with the following challenge. If you could go back in time to critical events in history and be there during the moments that defined our world, what would you do? Would you try to change anything? Should you change it? Since we at least know this version of our history, what if you make the future worse for mankind through your changes? How much change would you make? Can you think of any mistakes made in history any real unnecessary tragedies that led to even worse tragedies? Do you think that you could have done better than those who were in power in a certain place at a certain time? Do you think that by studying the period, if you went back in time, you would be able to avoid the mistakes that were made? Would you be able to prevent an unnecessary tragedy? This challenge, as it happens, is as relevant for our project here as it was for the July crisis. It is so easy to look at the Treaty of Versailles and criticise the stupidity, the narrow-mindedness, the selfishness, the inflexibility, or the bitterness of those involved. These men, we decry, should have known better. They shouldn't have treated Germany so harshly, or the Second World War wouldn't have happened. France shouldn't have been so vengeful. The Americans should have woken up to the moment, instead of embracing isolationism at precisely the wrong time. Britain should have been more perceptive. Italy shouldn't have been so greedy. The newly independent nations in the Balkans and the East should have been more composed, realistic and considerate. The big three of Woodrow Wilson, George Clemenceau and David Lloyd George should have known more, understood more and planned better than they did. On the other end of the scale, one might criticise the Germans for not swallowing their defeat. They had been defeated on the battlefield, fair and square, and it was time to pay the piper. The Kaiser should have been wiser, the stabbed-in-the-back mythos should never have been allowed to fester as it did. The generals should have saved the lives of their men before considering their personal honour and reputations. The German government should have accepted that defeat was the consequence of challenging the Entente and that they deserved the treatment which followed. If they didn't like it, then the Germans shouldn't have taken Alsace-Lorraine from France in 1871. They shouldn't have been the first to use poison gas in violation of the Hague Conferences. They shouldn't have been so demanding and bullying towards a collapsing Russia in the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. They shouldn't have expected anything less than a humiliation after they had caused the conflagration which had consumed Europe for four awful years. So they shouldn't have been surprised to receive scant mercy now that their nemesis was triumphant and they were consumed by revolution and despair at home. 
Such circumstances on the battlefield and among society, indeed, were precisely what had enabled Otto von Bismarck to take advantage of a collapsing France in 1871 and establish the German Empire. What goes around comes around, Germany, and you should have made like the French, rather than going down the path you went down instead. Again, these criticisms represent merely a drop in the bucket of the incredibly broad spectrum of opinion and debate on the issue. Others abound, scattered throughout the historiography, reflected in the long-forgotten papers of some foreign office official, subsumed within the rhetoric of justice and revenge, or masked by the extent of the anguish and grief which so many post-war citizens and statesmen were forced to grapple with. Some had buried sons, uncles, fathers, and friends. Now they would have to put all that aside for the greater good. Were they up to such a challenge? My point in this grim survey is that, as extensive as the literature on the outbreak of the First World War was, as conflicting and compelling its key debates, as vibrant and intriguing its central characters, the eight-month period after the armistice which forged the Treaty of Versailles contains more of these elements, for better or worse, in spades. It would be crazy to separate the Paris Peace Conference or Treaty of Versailles that it created from the First World War, yet without realising it, that is often what we do when lobbying criticism at the treaty. It cannot be understated just how profoundly important the memory and pain of the conflict was for those that arranged the peace, especially in the French case. It is sometimes taken for granted that the French terms were stupidly harsh, and that Georges Clemenceau facilitated the military sequel he didn't want by his brutish treatment of the French foe. As our brief synopsis of the Franco-German conundrum indicates, we will be attempting to dissect this debate, and I will be challenging you to play devil's advocate, to challenge what you think you know, to leave your preconceived notions or bias at the door. To see only France and the French pain, to imagine the burning need of all Frenchmen to rise above the ashes, to find a way to live with their larger, more powerful neighbour into the future, to deliver firm justice, but not to ruin the future of Franco-German relations, This was the task facing Georges Clemenceau and his peers. Amidst all the debate, indeed, it is easy to forget that the last thing Georges Clemenceau or any of his peers wanted was another German war. For all the happiness and satisfaction Clemenceau felt in victory, the war had made France only temporarily safer. Anyone with knowledge of the two states could see that. Indeed, as many historians have since pointed out, and as we touched upon, The destruction of the Habsburg and Russian Tsarist empires in the east left Germany with an unparalleled opportunity to expand into the smaller newborn nation-states which it would now have scores to settle with. German land was relatively untouched, its industry was still intact, and its people replenished within years. France, by contrast, had seen its industrial regions occupied and destroyed, and even its mining sector ruined by legions of retreating Germans, who flooded and burned their foe's industrial capacity in a final petty gesture of defiance. France was deeply in debt, and the only thing which she had to maintain her position as a great power in the world was her empire. Foolishly, perhaps, she invested heavily in that empire during the interwar years, and actually spent more on a practically pointless navy than she ever did on the more infamous waste of space, the Maginot Line. However, these errors and shortcomings were symptoms of a state which had been crushed under the weight of traumatic experience that no one wanted to go through again. 
in the month of August 1914 alone, 75,000 Frenchmen died, while on the 22nd of August, during the Battle of Charleroi, 27,000 Frenchmen died in a single day. The flower of France's youth had perished in a war which didn't even grant France any net benefits by the time of the peace, having received no sanctuary from her wartime experiences and receiving even fewer guarantees from her post-war allies at the Paris Peace Conference, Georges Clemenceau went for option C and tried to use what little leverage he still had to delay what appeared like the fearfully inevitable to many Frenchmen that felt they knew the German character. The Germans had been defeated in 1807, but they had returned with a vengeance in 1871, what was to stop history repeating itself again. That French efforts to secure itself against a new German attack failed are too often obscured by the thumping Nazi victories. We get blinded by those triumphs, we marvel at the French collapse in 1940, and we forget that the French had feared this moment since 1918. What was more, the French had been right to fear it. Instead of these facts vindicating the French fears, or the French actions at Versailles though, we instead tend to see 1940 as the inevitable result of the failure of the Treaty of Versailles, or even occasionally, as the just deserts for France and for French behaviour at the peace table and in the interwar years. Funnily enough, the unsolvable problem of Franco-German hostility stares out at us from the history pages, but for some reason we fail to really see it. The train carriage at Compiègne in 1918 was reused, as many know, for the French surrender in 1940, and thereafter it was destroyed, but that was far from the only symbolic act in this history of bitterness. The Parisian hotel which the German delegation arrived at in late April 1919 to sign the Treaty of Versailles was the same hotel where the Germans had first demanded the surrender of the French in 1871. In 1940, the Nazis would use this hotel as part of their HQ in Paris. The various indemnities of 1807, 1871 and 1919, the language used in the treaties, even the location of Versailles, which was used by Louis XIV as his base of operations while he terrorised the German Rhinelanders, and then became the centre of humiliation when the German Empire was found in 1871, and then was the location for that empire's humbling in 1919, these were all slights designed specifically to hammer home to the other side that we won this round. The round may have been over in 1919, but few in France, Georges Clemenceau among them, believed that the bell had rung on the battle just yet. Ferdinand Foch's infamous pronouncement that it was merely an armistice for 20 years both underlines and obscures this fact. It wasn't merely a gap between World War I and II. It was a pause in the Franco-German season of killing, which there seemed no way to safely, conclusively end to those that darkened the doorways of Versailles halls in 1919. And that French angle is, of course, only one angle. It is certainly an important one, since it forms a great part of the version of the story, which claims that Germany was unfairly treated, but it was by no means the only thing going on. What about Woodrow Wilson and his plan to craft a new world order represented in the League of Nations? What about the President's desire to replace colonies with mandates, to swap the pre-1914 era with a new, more considerate and more transparent international order? or to use the 14 points as the basis for a final peace settlement? Is Wilson to be admired for these efforts to make the world a better place? 
Were his actions doomed to fail or worse, were they merely window-dressing for his more sinister policy aims? Britain should also be investigated. Was David Lloyd George really the right man to represent the British at Versailles, considering his minimal knowledge of European affairs? Should Britain have done more to balance the middle ground between France and the Americans? Should Britain have done more to unwrap and publicise Woodrow Wilson's pronouncements, rather than just interpreting them as it suited her? Should British statesmen, spared the apocalyptic destruction of the French, have advocated moderation in their dealings with the Germans after all? Should the British, could the British, have set the example for others to follow in this regard, and did she fail us because of David Lloyd George's refusal to do so? It is difficult indeed to avoid the theme of failure when examining Versailles. The Allies failed to drive home to the Germans that they were actually defeated. They did not occupy German territory, save for a tiny slice of the Rhineland. They did nothing to challenge the stabbed-in-the-back myth, which grew to epic proportions. No effort was really made to clarify each of the 14 points, because each of the Allies possessed a stake in being able to interpret these points as they wished. This divided the Allied camp, but the 14 points were not the only source of division. The big three, in addition to Japan and Italy, came to Paris and then to Versailles with very different and conflicting aims. Some wanted recognition, territory, compensation, or all three. Others wanted to patch everything up and reopen for business as soon as was possible. In addition to these diplomatic pressure campaigns, we cannot forget the impact which the home front had on the negotiations. Before Woodrow Wilson had even left for Paris, the Democrats had lost their majority in Congress, which effectively shattered the President's mandate to remake the world in his unique vision. Republicans vociferously disagreed with any settlement which would compromise American freedom of action or supersede the Constitution. This included any alliance with the post-war powers. This severely reduced Wilson's options, but it also cast a cloud of illegitimacy on everything he did at Paris, a fact which was not lost on his peers. As soon as the president was replaced, they all wondered, would his decisions stand the test of time? David Lloyd George had a much more successful electoral experience in mid-December 1918, but this only exacerbated the Irish problem, which was soon to erupt in a bloody guerrilla war, and serve as an awkward example of why self-determination wasn't always applicable or possible. Clemenceau couldn't be seen as the man who dropped the ball now that the gauntlet had been survived, nor did he desire to go easy on the Germans after so many years of cold and hot war. The Italian premier, Vittorio Orlando, would fall from power when he proved unable to wrest the territorial concessions from the Allies that the Italians felt they had earned. The Italians had, in Orlando's defence, entered the First World War based on promises which the Allies found were no longer fashionable to keep, now that the American president was against such naked land grabs. With the toppling of Orlando's government in April 1919, Italy entered down a path which was to end with a dynamic right-wing populist Benito Mussolini. This brings us to the task of the project. It is, much like its prequel, a mission which houses many aims. First and foremost, I want to present as clear a narrative of the events leading up to the Treaty of Versailles as possible. I want within that narrative to provide enough background for us to understand and appreciate the significance and complexity of the treaty's preceding developments without getting bogged down. Second, I want to challenge the consensus. Just like I explained how Germany was not solely responsible for the outbreak of the First World War, 
a challenge to the consensus which continues to grow in acceptance, here I wish to challenge the consensus again. The Treaty of Versailles, I will argue, was not a wholly unjust settlement. It contained some reasonable points, and was in fact the fairest of all the settlements reached by the Allies with the Central Powers during the Paris Peace Conference. To this, I will add another two points. A, that I do not believe Versailles led automatically to the Second World War, and B, that just because I believe elements of the Treaty of Versailles were reasonable under the circumstances, this does not mean I believe Germany started the war. Now, this is a somewhat awkward fit, not least because it is incredibly rare for an account of the Versailles Treaty to highlight its positives while also questioning its core logic. In my view, then, the Germans were punished more for losing the war rather than for starting it, since any effort to apportion blame for the outbreak of the war would leave everyone, in reality, blackened in equal measure. The awkwardness of this stance is obvious, though. If I don't believe that Germany started the war, doesn't it follow that I believe the treaty which ended the war and blamed Germany for starting it was inherently unfair? Well, to this, I would argue, not necessarily. One is not dependent on the other, because the simple fact is that what happened to Germany in 1918-19 was a fact of life. History contains scores of examples of states being held accountable for foreign policy decisions which weren't always their fault. Consider even the French in the Franco-Prussian War, who were goaded and manipulated into declaring war on Prussia by Bismarck's diplomatic machinations. Were the French guilty of declaring war in that scenario? Yes. Did they deserve the punitive peace treaty which followed? No. I therefore take issue with the war guilt clauses of the Treaty of Versailles, but at the same time I understand why the treaty had to be signed, and why Germany had to be seen to take the fall. Whether we like it or not, punishing the defeated was how warfare worked, had worked, and will always work in human history. Germany had gambled, just like the other powers in 1914, that they would be able, through some deft use of strategy or resources, to emerge victorious on the other side. Her gamble had failed, and while I do take issue with those that insist her leaders planned the domination of Europe all along, and that Europe was somehow saved from German militarism by the Great War, I do appreciate that the traditions of war demanded punishment of the defeated. If the shoe had been on the other foot, and Germany had triumphed over the Allies, we imagine that her statesmen would have grappled with a similar challenge. It is difficult to reach the conclusion that German leaders, in that alternative scenario, would have followed any other course than that which treated France harshly, in a bid to avoid yet another war. Bismarck, indeed, had advocated punitive terms in the aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War to keep the French isolated and France weak so that Germany would not be vulnerable to attack from that direction again. If everyone was equally responsible for the war, then everyone was equally liable to be punished in the end for what had happened. Perhaps it was only a roll of the dice whether France or Germany was on the receiving end of a harsh peace settlement, but we should not be so naive as to assume that Germany was an undeserving victim who had done nothing wrong, or that the French were stupid for attempting to protect themselves from a second terrible war. No matter how much ink we spill on this question, we will never be able to change the fact that the loser in a war has to pay. That is just the way it is. I could argue that Germany shouldn't have been punished at all, but taking that stance, and imagining that the Allies had that option at all, it's to take great liberties with the truth. It would have been inconceivable for the Germans not to have paid any penalties. But the key question to me was not whether it was inherently just for them to be punished, 
but how much punishment was just. Evidently then, my conclusions hover between the three schools of thought like some undecided candidate who wants to please all sides. I have no interest in pleasing anyone, and I'm absolutely certain that this approach will offend many people who are set in their ways and refuse to think outside the box. I cannot do anything other than think outside the box. I cannot blindly ignore the issues which each of the three schools face in their turn. Remember, these three schools being seeing the treaty as a just and fair peace, the treaty as a terrible and naive move, and the treaty as the product of an impossible situation. So, I cannot adhere to a single one of these schools of thought without some serious reservations, and I feel like you guys deserve not to be treated like fools, and for me to pretend that one school out there offers all the answers. History is rarely, if ever, so clear-cut, because human beings shape history, and we are not clear-cut. We are messy, complicated, and sometimes defy easy classification. That, unfortunately, is where the Treaty of Versailles comes in. It was in some respects an admirable, Herculean effort to forge peace in a world which was coming apart at the seams. It was a collective effort to end conflict in a world which had been profoundly shaped by it. It was a brave, ambitious attempt to provide a new alternative to the international order, which everyone had always known. Does the fact that this effort proved a step too far forward in the end invalidate all the hard work which was done in its name? Does the Second World War mean that those at Versailles should never have tried, or that their efforts were always going to lead to the same endgame? Absolutely not. We should laud those individuals who did dare to dream that something could be learned from the Great War. We should applaud those statesmen, yes, even Woodrow Wilson, who believed that a wealth of potential existed in the spirit of cooperation. Just like in the case of the eruption of the Great War, the ultimate failure of the Treaty of Versailles and the arrival of a terrible sequel was not down to the errors of one group of people, those being the visionaries. Instead, it was a burden to be carried by all. The visionaries, as well as the pacifists, the appeasers, the militarists, the fascists, isolationists, anarchists, communists, democrats, republicans and everyone in between. We debase years of human achievement and underrate critically important records of brave efforts to maintain peace if we claim that the First World War led automatically to the Second. We also ignore the worthwhile scholarly efforts to measure the impact of the Wall Street crash and Great Depression, not to mention the actual impact which the person of Adolf Hitler made all by itself. In an alternative dream world, where the Germans would have got off scot-free following the end of the First World War, do we really believe that Hitler would not have found some other excuse? Hitler's claims about the miscarriage of justice which Versailles represented was but one facet of his appeal to bitter Germans. Others included the Great Depression and desire to reassert German influence in Europe, which the loss in the war had reduced. That sense of injustice at being stabbed in the back, of being let down by this minority group or ideological group or that, fanned the flames of Hitler's message and spoke more to Hitler's audience than the simple unfair stature of the Treaty of Versailles did. Hitler had dismantled the treaty by 1939 and he had effectively been let off the hook of Versailles as he did so. It was hard to feel bitter about Versailles when the terms of that treaty had long since ceased to be relevant after 1932. Arguably the greatest hook which Hitler possessed was anger. Anger within the German people not just at the way that they had been treated, but at the fact that they had lost. Germany should not have lost, the thinking went. Germany couldn't have lost, 
and the defeat never would have arrived had different people been in charge and opportunistic creatures not betrayed the fatherland. Militarily avenging the loss of the Great War would have been at the top of Hitler's agenda regardless of how upset Germans were over the terms of that peace. It was that military loss and the stunting of the future of the German people which Hitler despised as much as the terms of that loss itself. A sense of denial followed, epitomised in the stabbed in the back myth, and this even after the Allies had inflicted the criminal Treaty of Versailles upon Germany. Can you imagine how much further that stabbed in the back would have travelled had the Allies refrained from punishing Germany at all? In addition to the myth that she had been stabbed in the back by her civilian government, if no punishment at the peace table had followed, then there would have been added the additional myth that Germany hadn't been punished because she hadn't been wrong. Furthermore, the German army man's shaky appreciation for precisely how thoroughly defeated they were undermined, from the very beginning, the conception of the Treaty of Versailles. Had it been the case that the Allies had marched through Germany and paraded in Berlin, as the Prussians had done to Paris in 1871, we imagine that it would have been far easier for the Germans, as it would have been for the French, to swallow the bitter pill and move on, accepting that sometimes you play the game and you lose. Instead, though, German soldiers returned home quite literally greeted as heroes, who, it was declared, had never been defeated. This was despite the fact that the German high command had requested the armistice in the first place. Owing to the dire strategic situation and successive defeats on the Western Front. We will return to the question of Hitler and his relationship with Versailles in the future, of course, but for now, I would like to summarise a few things. This project is tasked with providing a narrative unparalleled in the audio medium on the Treaty of Versailles. If it wasn't obvious yet, as the name implies, we will be focusing on the Treaty of Versailles and the German peace settlement, referring to Germany's allies and their peace treaties only where I feel it's really necessary. In line with this, we will be playing devil's advocate. Did each of the relevant actors behave fairly or unfairly? What can we learn by placing the actions of those involved in their proper context? And to what extent can the Paris Peace Conference be condemned as a mission impossible scenario from the beginning? I will attempt to be as measured and impartial in my analysis as possible, but all history contains some elements of bias no matter how unintentional. Some would argue that my very unwillingness not to villainize either side is a sign of bias. But this is, as I said, more because I believe that history is rarely so straightforward as to nominate such a villain. What I really want is to provide you with a higher appreciation for everything that was happening from the 11th of November 1918 to the 28th of June 1919. By providing this accessible window into the era, I believe you will be better equipped to draw your own conclusions and agree or disagree with mine. I'm not trying to convert anyone here. Above all, I'm trying to open this era up to remove some of the literal fog of war and the historiography which surrounds it and to show you that actually... You can understand what is going on here, you can debate these things yourself, and you don't need to be any kind of specialist in order to do it. As much as possible, this project will draw out the genuine concerns and dreams of the relevant parties as a way of deconstructing what so often appears like a tired, stuffy, uninspiring image of old statesmen with naive ideas or inconsiderate aims. The more we know and understand about the big three of George Clemenceau, Woodrow Wilson and David Lloyd George, the more we see them as actual living, breathing people, the more we can absorb about the post-war order 
and the challenges each party faced. Consequently, the less bogged down we then are in flinging accusations or mounting smear campaigns, and the better equipped in the end we will all be. I believe this will help us to discern what actually happened a century ago, when after four years of ripping the world to shreds, those involved attempted piece by piece to put it back together again. The next few months are going to be very busy for us over at WDF Towers, so I would really appreciate it if you guys would spread the word and let people know what we're all about, and exactly how exciting this project is for me and for this podcast. Since this did take so much time and energy, and since it is still being worked on, and since it's all for free, I would be remiss if I didn't remind you guys that, hey, if you wanted to throw some dollars my way, I would really appreciate it. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, and for $2 a month, you can get all future episodes of the Versailles Anniversary Project absolutely free from ads or plugs of any kind, and you can also access the scripts for each episode that I'll be reading from. The Versailles Anniversary Project is something which I've been looking forward to ever since the July Crisis Anniversary Project was finished. It is a colossal, merciless beast of a project, but one which will effectively tie together all I know, all I think I know, and all I find fascinating about this era. It's like a labour of love, a tremendous history journey, and a second podcast thesis all rolled into one. In the second introduction episode, out right now, We break down the expected structure of this project and take some time to address the sources involved. We will also summarise our aims and hopefully not take too long to get to the actual point. I hope you'll join me for that history, friends and patrons, but until then, my name is Zach and you have caught me here at a very exciting time in our podcast's life cycle. Thanks so much for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.